This is A-State Connections on KASU. I'm Jonathan Reeves. This is a weekly segment called A-State Connections and Create at State, Making Connections That Count. Well, in this segment, we play back some of the presentations from this year's Created State Virtual Symposium, as that took place Monday through Wednesday of last week. And these presentations are from the College of Nursing and Health Professions at Arkansas State. The first presentation is from Kirsten Anderson. Her presentation is titled, The Effect of Kangaroo Care on the Length of Time Premature Infants Spend in the NICU. Prematurity is defined as being born before 37 weeks of gestation, and it is a leading cause of death in children under the age of five. Kangaroo care is typically defined as skin-to-skin contact between a newborn and a parent and nearly exclusive intake of breast milk. It is being studied as an alternative or supplement to traditional infant care. This study specifically looked at the effect of kangaroo care on length of stay and discharge criteria in the neonatal intensive care unit. An increased length of stay actually increases the infant's risk of infection and developmental delays due to stimulation. Review of the literature shows that kangaroo care had a positive impact on weight gain, increased breastfeeding at discharge, reduced mortality rates, and reduced risk of sepsis in the NICU. However, results surrounding the length of stay in the literature were rarely reported and were conflicting or not statistically significant. This study was implemented via a retrospective chart review at St. Bernard's Neonatal Intensive Care Unit. Charts were pulled from their database of infants born less than 37 weeks of gestation between March 2019 and March 2020. Information was then gathered on an infant's weight, length, gestational age at birth and discharge, respiratory support, feedings, parental visits, length of stay, and number of kangaroo care sessions. Data was analyzing using SPSS statistics. 50 charts were reviewed, but only 35 were used for data collection and analysis. Infants born less than 30 after 35 weeks of gestation were actually excluded because they typically did not spend much time in the NICU. Also excluded were infants with incomplete chart records due to transfers, and one infant that had no kangaroo care sessions was determined an outlier. The primary hypothesis of the study is that kangaroo care would decrease length of stay in the NICU. Secondarily, increased sessions of kangaroo care would lead to decreased stays until full oral feedings, decreased stays on respiratory support, and decreased incidences of infection. It would also lead to increased length and weight gain. 35 infants were analyzed with an average gestational age of 32 weeks in one day at birth. The average length of stay was 36.91 days, the average number of kangaroo care sessions was 28.57, with a minimum of one and a maximum of 210. A Pearson's R correlation test was then used to determine if kangaroo care had any effect and correlation on length of stay, weight change, length change, respiratory support, or feedings. There was a weak positive correlation found between kangaroo care and length of stay at a 0.262 and a significant level greater than 0.05, this was opposite of our expected hypothesis. Kangaroo care versus weight change was found to be moderately statistically significant at a value of 0.358 and a significant level less than 0.05. Kangaroo care was also found to be moderately statistically significant versus weight change at a value of 0.528 and significance level less than 0.01. Kangaroo care and parental visits were found to be strongly correlated at a level of 0.988 and a significance level of less than 0.01. There were a few limitations in this study. 
One was the delay in IRB processing that limited data collection to one month instead of the proposed two. This resulted in a lower number of charts reviewed than it anticipated. Also, no true control group could be defined due to only one infant having zero sessions of kangaroo care. No genders or race were documented to determine if they had any effect on length of stay. And finally, frequencies of occurrences and the variables were hand tallied, which could have resulted in calculation errors. Kangaroo care versus length of stay was a weak positive correlation, which was the opposite of our predicted hypothesis. This actually concurs with our literature that found no statistical significance between kangaroo care and length of stay. However, there was a statistical significance between kangaroo care and length change and kangaroo care and weight change. A Cochrane review concurred with this result. However, another meta-analysis found no correlation between those variables. This is statistically significant and significant in the real world because weight and length gain are meaningful in the NICU. These variables show that infants are being nutritionally supported and are thriving and that kangaroo care is contributing to that. There was also a strong correlation noted between kangaroo care and parental visit, which shows that parents are interacting, bonding, and being involved in their child's care while in the NICU. And that was Kirsten Anderson. Next is Cassie Clement. Her presentation is Nursing Student and Faculty Perceptions of ICU Patient Sleep. So sleep is a periodic reversible state of disengagement from the environment and it is essential, like breathing, eating, and drinking. Patients in a hospital must have sleep. Sleep is an important component in the well-being of an individual and plays a role in healing. Poor sleep quality is a common complaint in hospitals and is consistently reported by patients in the ICU. And alarmingly, sleep is of particular importance for these patients in the ICU because they have an increased anabolic requirement. Patients are often disturbed during the nighttime hours beyond what is necessary for their excellent care and nurses need to make every effort to ensure that these patients are getting the best quality sleep possible. Nurses play a central role in monitoring and encouraging patient sleep and are instrumental in creating environments that are conducive to sleep. So in order to gather further information about sleeping critical care patients, I surveyed nursing students and nursing faculty to determine their perceptions of sleep in critical care patients. So a survey, a survey made up of 17 questions was sent out via publicly available email addresses to all senior nursing students and current nursing faculty over the age of 18. I had 47 participants in this survey, and the survey was created through Qualtrics and sent out two different times. It contained free response, multiple choice, and a ranking questions with a 0 to 10 scale. Data that was collected from this survey were analyzed and um, compared in order to determine trends. So some demographic data for my participants, the median age was 23 and the average age was 21. There were four males and 43 females who completed the survey. 18 of them were nursing faculty and 29 were nursing students. 16 had worked in the critical care setting while 31 had not. And of the nursing students, 19 had completed their critical care rotation and 10 had not. Participants were also polled on how much sleep that they received nightly and their answers ranged from five to nine hours. So when asked if most ICU patients obtain adequate quality and quantity of sleep, 47 said no and none said yes. When asked how important that they believe sleep to be in ICU patients, 34 said extremely important and 13 said very important. So these graphs represent the response of patients, of participants, when asked to choose a number between zero and 10 that best represented the negative degree that these factors impacted sleep in the critical care setting. So the top left shows light exposure, 
The top right shows patient care activities and the bottom shows a noisy environment. And these graphs represent the response of participants when asked to choose a number between zero and 10 that best represented the positive degree that these factors impacted sleep in the critical care setting. So the top left shows earplugs, the top right shows eye masks, and the bottom shows sedatives and sleeping pills. And these are some more of the response of participants when asked about positive factors. On the left is staff education, and on the right is clustered care. And clustered care is when um, patient care activities are tried, when providers try to do them at the same time instead of spreading them out. So at the end of this survey, participants were also polled on suggestions that they had for improving patient sleep, and clustered care was the most common answer. Earplugs and staff education and staff awareness were also popular answers. Um, and these are some of my findings. All 47 of my participants indicated that critical care patients do not receive sufficient quali quality or quantity of sleep, and all of them rank sleep as either extremely important or very important. These findings were encouraging to me and were expected just with the literature that I've viewed about sleep in ICU patients. The ICU has been described as a noisy environment with a high level of in-room interruptions of excessive light exposure and a place where many patient care activities make it difficult to lower noise, and that patients need constant assessment and interventions as frequent as every 5 to 15 minutes. So the average of the participant ratings for negative factors showed that they believed noise to be the most detrimental to patient sleep. This was followed by patient care activities and light exposure was on average ranked to be the least harmful. Of the positive factors, eye mask and earplugs were on average thought to be the least helpful and these were followed by sleeping pills and sedatives, then staff education and clustered care was ranked on average to be the most helpful. Um, and then some of my limitations include that the response rate was only 39.8%, and so it might not have shown as high of correlations as possible. The survey was in a limited area, and there were modifications necessary due to COVID. That was Cassie Clement. Next is Laura Bass with her presentation, The Benefits of Using Intraoperative Radiation Therapy to Treat Breast Cancer Compared to Whole Breast Irradiation. A new approach to delivering radiation therapy that has been explored by researchers and physicians is called Intraoperative Radiation Therapy, or IORT for short. And so traditionally, whole breast irradiation is when a beam is entering the patient's body externally and radiating the tumor and the surrounding tissues. But with IORT, instead of coming in externally, a probe is placed during surgery that delivers the dose to, directly to the tumor bed. And so this allows better shielding for the surrounding healthy tissues. Um, the purpose of this project is to examine the benefits and effectiveness of IORT compared to external beam radiation in order to deliver the best possible treatment for the patient. And research was done in which analyzation of various treatment approaches and combinations were conducted, as well as how they affected patients in the short term and how effective they were overall. So there was two major studies done to assess the effectiveness of using IORT clinically, and those were the Target A trial and the Elliott trial. Um, in the Target A trial, a sample size of about 3,500 women, 45 years and older, were randomly selected to receive a one-time dose using IORT or whole breast irradiation dose um, treatments over a three to five week period. And then in the Elliott study, there was about a 1,300 um, sample size of women, 48 years and older, who were randomly selected to receive a one-time dose using IORT or a WBI with a, with a boost treatment over a six week period. 
So both of the studies yielded very similar results. Skin toxicity profiles were lower for patients in IORT groups, and there was less reported skin erythema, which is redness of the skin. There was less reported dryness, hyperpigmentation, and itching. And there was also fewer non-breast cancer-related deaths that were also reported for IORT groups. So overall, patients received comparable cosmetic outcomes and experienced a superior breast-related quality of life. But initial research also indicated that the rate of recurrence for patients who were administered IORT were between 3% and 4% compared to 1% or less for patients who were administered whole breast irradiation. So the reason that this happens is when during a whole breast irradiation treatment, the dose delivered to the patient's breast is not only um, the tumor and the tumor bed are not the only things receiving dose, the whole breast is. So if there's any cancer cells that weren't detected through previous imaging, um, those are getting radiated. Um, but with IORT, since the dose is concentrated to that one area and the healthy tissue is shielded, if there's any cancer cells anywhere else in the breast that weren't detected, those don't receive a dose. So that's why the rate of recurrence is a little higher for IORT, but it's still a very small percentage. And there's adaptations of IORT that may decrease this risk. So following initial trials, researchers are continuing to analyze patient factors in conjunction with using IORT and their diagnostic outcomes. And researchers are also considering how adaptations of IORT, such as administering it alongside whole breast irradiation, could possibly yield the same cosmetic benefits to patients while also reducing the rate of recurrence. So you're kind of getting the best of both worlds by trying to incorporate these two into one treatment plan because you're getting the better cosmetic outcomes, the cheaper cost, and the um, a lower dose to the patient with the IORT aspect of it. But with the whole breast irradiation, you are ensuring that the rate of recurrence for that patient is much lower by radiating more uh, area. So in conclusion, intraoperative radiation therapy offers reduced treatment duration and cost effectiveness, as well as its capability to successfully treat breast cancer while irradiating less healthy tissue and yielding less severe side effects. So with further research and clinical trials, IORT has the potential to be a very beneficial and effective treatment option for patients diagnosed with breast cancer. And I personally chose to research this topic because when treating cancer, it's so vital to use the best technology you can and formulate the most optimal treatment plan to ensure that the patients are receiving the highest level of care possible with the most ideal outcomes. That was Laura Bass. Next, Meredith Greathouse with her presentation, Pediatric Imaging. Medical imaging is extremely valuable as a diagnostic tool in the pediatric population, but it comes with several distinct challenges. The goal is to reduce pediatric exposure time while still providing high quality images. The purpose of this project is to discuss methods that can contribute to the reduction of pediatric exposure. Our objectives, we will discuss the rationale of the examination with the patient and parent to ensure clear understanding of benefits and risk, discuss the methods of radiation reduction that should be implemented in pediatric imaging, and we will also be discussing ideas that can contribute to the reduction of pediatric exposure. Some methods that we can use to uh, reduce pediatric radiation is immobilization techniques, communication with parents and patients, 
kid-friendly activities and staff education and always practicing LARA. Pediatric population, um, pediatric imaging worldwide represents approximately 10% of all imaging. Children and youth who need diagnostic imaging range from birth to 18 or 21 years old. No matter which of the radiologic technologists' careers you choose, you are likely to work with children. And to me, this is a true statement because I've uh, had clinical experience and I've been to different clinical sites and I've had to perform x-rays on children at every clinical site I've been to. Uh, worldwide, an estimated 3.6 billion diagnostic medical examinations, um, such as x-rays, are performed every year. About 350 million of these are performed on children under 15 years of age. Children are at a higher risk because they have more rapidly dividing cells and greater life expectancy, allowing the clinical manifestation of radiation-induced cancers with decades-long latency periods. And so as technologists, our job is to um, do everything we possibly can to reduce their risk of cancer and practice radiation safety. Discuss action plan. Do not be afraid to ask um, parents for help. More than likely, they're willing to help you. Um, imaging a child can be difficult in positioning them. So if you need help, ask the parent, get them involved. Just make sure you shield them appropriately. Give children comforting items such as a toy or a pacifier um, just to make them comfortable and um, keep them calm. Communication with staff and parents is key. Um, you need to make sure that all staff has an education class on equipment settings for pediatric imaging. We want to utilize those immobilization equipment if necessary. Um, we want to eliminate unnecessary exams, avoid repeat exams and shield dose-sensitive organs, and always put the patient's needs first. Here I have some images uh, of those immobilization techniques and equipment. So we have a CT scan, and they've just um, immobilized his head to keep him from moving to avoid any repeat exams. And then over here we have the Pigistat to also keep the patient or child from moving so we don't have to do any repeat exams. And none of these are harmful at all. They may look a little scary, but they're all very safe. And then uh, this picture demonstrates items you can give a child to um, comfort them. Also, this is an example of how a room uh, for pediatric imaging could look to make the child feel more uh, comfortable. And then we have a um, chart that demonstrates estimated medical radiation dose of five-year-old. And just give some statistics on that. Well, hear more segments and interviews. You can subscribe to the Credit State Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcast. And take KASU with you wherever you go and listen to podcast segments on the KASU mobile app. And please tell others about the Credit State Podcast and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts uh, we would love to hear from you as this is the Created State Podcast and A-State Connections on KASU. Streaming live at KASU.org.